The Olympic torch run for the Radioactive Tokyo 2020 Olympics is now less than seven weeks away and scheduled to not only stay in Fukushima Prefecture for the first three days, but plans are now being made to bring it into and through Futaba, the town where the triple meltdown of Fukushima Daiichi is located. Now, the Japanese government, Tokyo Electric Power Company, and the International Olympic Committee all say it's A-OK, no difficulty, you won't have any problems. But then you hear of a statement from a former resident of Futaba, a woman forced out of the town and out of her life by the nuclear disaster, who's looking at this event up close and personal. And she says, Reconstruction is just a fantasy. The reconstruction being touted in conjunction with the Olympics completely diverges from reality. In an environment where contaminated water keeps flowing and contaminated debris keeps piling up, we shouldn't be doing PR just for the Olympics. We aren't recovered yet. It's just making up something newsworthy out of nothing. Well, when you hear that from somebody whose life has been torn apart by the nuclear disaster, it starts to come clear that we're all being hornswoggled by the mask of normalcy being slapped onto the ongoing Fukushima disaster. And that means that not only the Olympic torch runners and tourists and the media covering it are at risk, but the rest of us, all of us, are in that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an update on the Radioactive Tokyo 2020 Olympics torch relay now aimed to go through the highly radioactive, still difficult-to-return zone of Fukushima Daiichi's host town, Futaba. Beverly Findlay Kaneko provides the details, along with voices from Japan, the direct statements of former residents of Futaba on what is happening there now, translated from Japanese blog posts exclusively for Nuclear Hot Seat. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was heard in Washington, D.C. this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out with a big win in the Ontario province of Canada, where an indigenous community has rejected a nuclear waste bunker near Lake Huron. 
This is after years of consultation and days of voting. The 4,500-member Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, or SON, announced last Friday that 85% of those casting ballots had said no to accepting a deep geologic repository at the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant near Kincardine in Ontario. The proposal was to place a nuclear waste dump one mile from the shores of Lake Huron. And Ontario Power Generation was offering the tribal nation $150 million to approve it. They didn't. And now that long and hard-fought battle is over and there will be no repository there. There has to be one somewhere, but it is not going to be on the shores of Lake Huron and the basin of the Great Lakes, for which we, the people of Earth, owe the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation our deepest gratitude. And I love how the headline in the Detroit News, Ontario Energy Company ends plans to store nuclear waste near Lake Huron, made it sound like OPG was behind that decision, as opposed to First Nations people. Here in the U.S., this country has now deployed the W-76-2 low-yield Trident nuclear submarine warhead from Kings Bay Submarine Base in Georgia. This cute little nuclear warhead only, put that in quotes, five kilotons, one-third the size of the Hiroshima bomb, was brainstormed by the Trump administration and unveiled in February of 2018. The justification? The United States did not have a prompt or usable nuclear capacity. And this cute little bugger is going to, quote, help counter any mistaken perception of an exploitable gap in U.S. regional deterrence capabilities. Look, it doesn't matter the size of a nuke. Any country that sees incoming on their radar is not going to stop and evaluate the relative danger. They're going to push the button on their own nukes and hello, Armageddon. Several former high-ranking administration officials have said the weapons increase the potential for nuclear conflict. In Washington state, Energy Northwest is considering whether there is a need and regional interest for adding a cute, small nuclear reactor system near the Tri-Cities. That's the area of Hanford, a super, super fun site and the most contaminated place in the Western Hemisphere. Small modular reactors exist only in theory at this point, but that will not stop Energy Northwest's plan to spend up to $2 million to look at the feasibility of adding one near its existing reactor, which is the Columbia Generating Station near Richland. In Navajo Nation, near Shiprock, New Mexico, the Navajo Birth Cohort Study is showing promise that zinc, the supplement zinc, may be useful in eliminating uranium contamination from the body. According to Dr. Johnny Lewis, the birth cohort studies principal investigator and a former interviewee on Nuclear Hot Seat, early reports show zinc repairing strands of DNA that were broken by exposure to arsenic and uranium, the two elements that have been found in high concentration in the blood and urine of some study participants. Results of the study are expected within a year. Until then, Dr. Lewis warns that folks not go home and start taking a bunch of supplements because too much zinc is bad, too. When in doubt, always check with your primary medical practitioner. 
There's a new study by Bob Alvarez and others recently published in the Journal of Energy Policy about sea level impacts on U.S. spent nuclear power fuel due to climate change. We'll link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 450. In Southern California, regarding San Onofre, the nonprofit advocacy group Public Watchdogs announced that it has filed a formal legal petition to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission demanding that the NRC investigate the possibility of lethally radioactive water geysers occurring on the beach at San Onofre's State Beach Park in San Diego County. The Yellowstone effect, as it is being called, is now believed to be likely to occur if the facility is flooded with rain or ocean water. There's a petition about this we will link to, and we will have a report coming up within the next two weeks. In Japan, that country's nuclear regulators say that high-level radiation was detected last month in the number two reactor building of the remains of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. A robot on the top floor of the building directly above the reactor detected 683 millisieverts of radiation per hour. What does that mean? According to Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, that's the equivalent of 68 rem and would be lethal to human life in nine hours. And that's how close to where the Olympic torch relay is supposed to be going by? We'll have a video posted on the website of NBC's Bryant Gumbel talking with Sean Burney of Friends of the Earth about radiation levels in Fukushima Daiichi, specifically Futaba, and the impact on the 2020 Summer Olympics. And speculation continues as to whether those Olympics can even be held in light of the coronavirus. The newly Brexited UK government's plan to build a new generation of 10 nuclear power stations suffered another severe blow on February 4th, when the British utility Centrica pulled out of the program in the process writing off a £200 million investment in the process. Centrica's chief executive, Sam Laidlaw, said the company had pulled out because the project was more costly and extended further into the future than had been planned four years ago. Even before the announcement, the UK government was struggling to avert the collapse of its plans. German utilities have already withdrawn from the UK program. And in Russia, one aspect of their nuclear past is coming back to bite them on the posterior. As the country considers the best way to raise thousands of radioactive relics from watery Arctic graves. Russia's Emergency Services Ministry says that some 18,000 pieces of radioactive litter, most of it dumped by the Soviet Navy, have been leapt in the depths of the Barents and Kara Seas off the coast of Murmansk. According to a 2012 catalog of the materials, There are some 17,000 containers of radioactive waste, 19 ships containing radioactive waste, 14 nuclear reactors, including five still loaded with so-called spent nuclear fuel, and 735 other pieces of radioactively contaminated miscellaneous. Good luck with that. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's
What's the latest tourist hotspot? Chernobyl! Ever since the HBO series showed how horrific and the radioactive contamination that followed was, people just can't wait to visit the scene where it happened and take selfies with the invisible radiation that's going to wreck their health and their genetic downline. The Guardian, a British paper, just published a series of tourist photographs, including some at a souvenir shop with a radiation symbol plainly displayed. The problem is that, as you will hear in today's featured interview, this models dangerous behaviors that could be duplicated or embellished upon by visitors to Japan for the Olympics torch relay or the games themselves, coronavirus permitting. The boundaries around the radioactive zones are not secure. A determined idiot, like the host of Dark Tourist, a series on Netflix, a man who ignored warnings and got himself in a serious radiation zone on camera, those people could go and dance around in a radiation zone that is four times or more higher than what is allowed at the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Mm-mm can't wait to see their babies, presuming they can even have any. Thrill-seekers, serious thrill-seekers, can just as well get their adrenaline fix by bungee jumping, running with the bulls at Pamplona, or going unarmed into Walmart in an open-carry state. But hey, what you can't see can't hurt you, unless it's radiation. And then, oh, brother. And that's why any tourist dumb enough to go into Chernobyl or any other radiation zone like Fukushima in order to get their jollies, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, does it strike you that the whole world is heating up? not just from climate change issues, but because it's starting to wake up to the fact that nuclear issues and problems are real and growing? I know the number of stories coming into Nuclear Hot Seat feels overwhelming at times, because so many people in so many places are doing such good work to bring honest information about nukes into the public eye, and then you share it with me. One of the purposes of this show is to make you aware of the work against nuclear that's going on around the world, who the people are who are doing it, what's worked, what's in the planning stages, and how you, how anyone, can get involved. Another purpose is to acknowledge activists who have been doing this work, to give them an at-a-girl or at-a-boy or at-a-whatever to help keep them in good heart as they tackle what they see as their part of stopping the nuclear menace. Now, as I've shared with you before, the only thing that keeps Nuclear Hot Seat going is the support of listeners like you. There is no better time than right now to make that donation you've been thinking of giving. It will go to support the website makeover, which is in progress even as we speak, and more importantly, all the different services necessary to put this show together and get the information out to the world. Let's face it, Nuclear Hot Seat is the one place you can count on every week to give you a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information. So if you oppose nuclear, help us get the word out with a donation. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to send a donation of any size. And to set up a monthly $5 donation, 
the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., click on the big green donate button at nuclearhotseat.com. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Yep, this week's interview is part of our ongoing coverage of the upcoming Radioactive Tokyo 2020 Olympics, this time the torch relay. This week, we again speak with Beverly Finlay Kaneko about the latest developments in that torch relay and plans to take it through the radioactive zones of Fukushima Prefecture. For some background, Beverly lived in Yokohama, Japan for 20 years, until March 11 of 2011, after the Great, the great Eastern, Eastern Japan, Japan earthquake. She worked she at Yokohama, Yokohama National University and the Japan Times, holds a master's degree in East Asian Studies from Stanford University, and speaks Japanese fluently. Beverly and her husband, Yuji Kaneko, have been active in raising awareness about nuclear issues, including the nuclear accident at Fukushima. Their main activities have included organizing speaking tours, giving presentations, networking in activist and nuclear-impacted communities in the U.S. and Japan, and co-producing the annual Nuclear Hot Seat Voices from Japan special on Fukushima. They also provide updates on important issues throughout the year. Here, Beverly adds to our knowledge of what's wrong with having the Olympic torch relay going through the town that grew up around the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. The triple meltdown wreckage site is right there. What she has to share includes material translated from the Japanese exclusively for nuclear hot seat. We spoke on January 26, 2020. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, it's Always a pleasure to have you on the show and get your direct reports about what's happening on the ground in Japan and especially in Fukushima. Thank you, Libby. It's always great to be on Nuclear Hot Seat and be able to share this information with your listeners. Let's go to the basics. It's the Tokyo Olympics. Why is the Olympic torch relay even taking a detour to Fukushima? Actually, the Olympic torch will travel to all 47 prefectures in Japan over the next few months, and there are going to be PR events all all along the course to whip up excitement for the Olympics. It's starting in Fukushima because the government has decided to coin these Olympics the Fukogorin, or the official English translation is Reconstruction Olympics to signal to the world that Japan has recovered from the triple disaster of March 11, 2011. Which, of course, is not the truth. Well, of course not. But the main driver behind this is that Prime Minister Abe wants to be the prime minister when the Olympics happen. And he has been quoted as saying that he wants to be able to say that Japan has recovered. Unfortunately, he just can't just wish upon a star and make it better. So he's doing his best con job that he can to make it seem that way. Where is the torch relay going in Fukushima? It's going to be in the prefecture for three days. It's first traveling to the still contaminated and struggling coastal towns of Hamadori on March 26th through the 28th. 
And then it'll visit uh, towns in the middle and western parts of the prefecture after that. And in each area, it's going to visit various towns. And each day of the time there in Fukushima and throughout the rest, rest of Japan, it's going to end up in a town that'll have a special event going on. Recently, it was announced that Futaba, the town where Fukushima Daiichi is located, has been added to and is going to be part of this torch relay. But isn't that area still too contaminated for runners to be passing through? First of all, I want to make it clear that Futaba hasn't been officially approved to be on the torch relay. The news was that Fukushima Governor Uchibori announced that the prefecture would like to include Futaba. The Olympic Committee is expected to weigh in on it next month, but it'll probably be included. So, yes, to your question, for the most part, Futaba and many other areas in Fukushima should be off limits for runners, tourists, spectators, and returning residents, and people who have stayed there all along, quite frankly. But the torch relay is projected to travel very short distances on a very carefully curated route. And really, that's where the problem lies, according to evacuees who are being affected by the rush to open up areas that should remain closed. Area-wise, only 4% of Futaba is going to be reopened on March 4th. So 96% of that town is still going to be closed. There's a one square mile corner just north of Fukushima Daiichi that's right next to an interim contaminated waste site that's going to have evacuation orders lifted. And then there's a two square mile area around Futaba Station that will have limits on entry relaxed. Not really lifted, but they're going to be relaxed. Those areas won't be ready for people to move back in for a whole nother two years. But all the barricades are coming down anyway. People are not going to be allowed to stay the night in that area, but anyone, including children, will be allowed to visit. Children, pregnant women, anyone who might be more susceptible to the radiation. Yes, and just people who are really ignorant about what's going on. And I, I think specifically, you know, the people who've watched dark tourism, those kinds of people that are going for an adventure. I have a feeling there's going to be some trouble with that kind of thing. What is the requirement for an area to have evacuation orders lifted? There are several requirements, and Mainichi Shimbun reporter Kosuke Hino who's been covering the unfair treatment of evacuees really since the accident happened. He described a public meeting about reopening these areas in Futaba. At the meeting, former mayor of Futaba, who was the mayor at the time of the accident, Mayor Itogawa, pointed out several requirements that were supposed to be followed that are being glossed over. The number one requirement is that the radiation dose has to be less than 20 millisieverts per year. To give us a sense of what that means, give us the equivalency for Chernobyl with the evacuation zone and what the levels are there that are allowed. It's my understanding that the exclusion zone in Chernobyl was 5 millisieverts per year. So if you go to 
presentations or you hear people speak about giving reasons why this 20 millisieverts per year is really unfair. Often in Japan, that particular number is cited. So Chernobyl's upper limit for allowing people into the exclusion zone is five millisieverts per year. But in Japan, it's four times that, meaning 20 millisieverts per year. Wasn't there an original number that was allowed for radiation exposure that was much lower than that in Japan? Well, sure. The standard for the rest of Japan and the original standard was one millisievert per year. Now it's 20 times, and that's only for Fukushima. In 2017, on Nuclear Hot Seat Voices from Japan, we spoke with attorney Yuki Saito, who's working with citizens in Minami Soma, who are actually suing, pursuing a lawsuit protesting this elevated and unfair standard as discrimination. What are some of the other requirements that are supposed to be followed but have been glossed over in this reopening in Fukushima? Okay, so the second requirement is that infrastructure and services need to be ready for people to live in that area. And this is just absolutely not true for Futaba. Just no no way, no how. They don't even have the little convenience stores and things that some of the other areas got. It's not ready for people. The third thing is the understanding of citizens, which should be gained through quote-unquote adequate discussion in public meetings. It's interesting because adequate, word adequate, was deleted from later versions of the stipulations. Um, The meetings that they have, the public meetings, are a lot like the San Onofre of what I call the community enragement panel. It's actually the community engagement panel meetings on decommissioning that we have here in Southern California. It's more of a chance for the powers that be to tell the public whatever they want to. And there's really very little chance for meaningful public comment. For example, at this particular meeting, Mayor Idogawa detailed two further requirements for lifting evacuation orders that were stipulated by Fukushima Prefecture before the accident ever happened. And that would be, number one, the accident site has been stabilized, which is not true in the case of Fukushima Daiichi. I know they talk about shoring up areas of the plant and having boric acid on site and blah, blah, blah. But if there were to be another big earthquake or if there was some kind of accident that happened during the Olympics, you know, radiation is going to be released, whether they can try to stop that or not. It's still going to be a problem. And the second thing would be that radiation is no longer being released into the environment. And it's really common knowledge that the contaminated water, for one, is every single day flowing out of the plant. The silly ice wall that never worked. When the wind blows, there's dust being kicked up from decontamination and so forth. So radiation is still around the environment. At the meeting, after Itogawa-san pointed these things out, he asked when radiation still continues to flow into the environment, he got no answer to his question because the bell rang that signaled that the meeting time was up. So that's how they treat a former mayor who 
was mayor at the time of the accident and evacuated to a different prefecture with hundreds of his citizens, he doesn't even get an answer to these questions. That's the way the nuclear industry, the nuclear establishment always tricks out any kind of meetings with the public to damp down what public people have to say and make certain that what has prominence is the position of the industry. Let's backtrack a bit. Didn't you just say that Futaba wouldn't be ready for residents for two years or until 2022 at the earliest? Yes, that's right. Why are they reopening it now? That was the very question that was asked at the public meeting. And again, there was no answer. They just wouldn't admit that it was for the Olympics. In your estimation, what is the purpose of the torch relay coming to and through Fukushima? Personally, I think it's all about PR and trying to polish something that's impossible to polish. But let's talk about Governor Uchibori, the governor of Fukushima. Frankly, he has trouble articulating what it's all about. At a press conference in December last year, he spouted some nonsense about showcasing the light and the shadows of recovery in Fukushima. And when he was asked just what he meant by that, he said that light means the reduction in exclusion zones and an increase in foreign tourists. So that's positive to him. By shadows, he meant that the former exclusion zones have only attracted 10% of the people to return. And actually, we learned that in places closer to Fukushima Daiichi, like Namie, where Yuji and I visited in September last year, the number is like only 5%. And most of the people that have returned are senior citizens. So I suppose in central and western parts of the prefecture that were less contaminated, they also want to showcase local culture. They want to foster tourism. They want to polish the Fukushima brand, which really has been damaged by the whole accident, you know, even areas where it's pretty safe to travel, I think. Um, I don't really have a problem with that. Just so that they're honest about the really serious problems faced by the hardest hit areas along the coast. In Nuclear Hot Seat episodes 438 and 439 last November, you described some of the towns that you visited in the former exclusion zone, such as Tomioka, Namie. You painted a pretty bleak picture of them. Yes. My overall impression was that reconstruction wasn't focused on restoring lives of former residents as much as it was about building big new projects and fostering new industrial growth. For example, in Kawauchi Village, there were new ventures such as a wetsuit factory with workers that they've had to import from Thailand because there aren't enough people that live there to staff the wetsuit factory. The towns we visited were populated mostly with men in grubby work clothes. They looked like they were involved in decontamination work or construction projects. And many, if not most, of the vehicles on the roads and in parking lots were trucks. I saw very few women, and I only saw one child in that area. That's probably a good thing. Yes. Do you know what the torch relay will showcase in those towns? 
Yes, I do. For the most part, you know, you can go online and they, they sort of show you what the courses are. And Tomioka, it's going to start at the train station that's going to be reopening in March. And in Namie, it's going to take in a robot testing field and a hydrogen energy research facility. All of these things are brand new, by the way. In Itatemura, the relay will start at the new brand new community center, and it will end at a brand new fancy park and end at a brand new fancy parking rest area. To be sure, the black bags full of decontamination debris that we see all the time in pictures online and protest signs that we saw on our trip will not be along the carefully scoured route. Radiation levels will also appear to be low along the route, but we've been looking at a blog by a guy named Hiroki Suzuki. It's called Taminokoi Shimbun, Citizen's Voice newspaper. And he wrote a very interesting post about walking along the route in Itatemura. He took his radiation monitor and he found elevated levels on the sides of the roads and side streets along the way in comparison to the official monitoring posts along the course. He also said that he saw no decontamination debris bags visible along the course. Um, and just before we talked, I got some new information from the Yomiuri newspaper from January 21st. And Fukushima Prefecture's very own measurements along that route found a 0.25 microsieverts per hour and 0.77 microsieverts per hour at one meter along the side of the road. The prefecture has announced that it will discount those measurements because the runners will only be briefly passing by <laughs> that area. They'll only have a chance to get a little bit pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, just to tell you that their standard is 0 0.23. So 0 0.23 is microsieverts per hour is supposedly the safe level uh, by prefecture standards. So this route along Itatemura is by its own standards is not safe. So when is the standard not the standard when it's inconvenient? Right. How do the evacuees feel about the torch relay? Well, for this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, I was able to translate opinions of Fukushima residents and evacuees about the torch relay that Hiroki Suzuki uh, reported in his blog, Taminokoi Shimbun, that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, as I was translating, I kept coming across a phrase in Japanese that was new to me. And that phrase is hakomono. Literally, it means box things. And I kept thinking, are they building box factories? I don't understand. Are they going to be manufacturing cardboard boxes? Is that the industry? But actually, what box things is rather buildings and construction projects. So the residents were talking about the government building construction projects and buildings rather than actually doing things to help restore the lives of the people that live there or that the people that are intended to go back there. 
indeed, Mainichi Shimbun reporter Hino, who we talked about earlier, he quoted present mayor Izawa of Futaba. That's a little confusing. The mayor now is Izawa. The former mayor is Idogawa. So the present mayor Izawa was boasting about trying to attract industry to Futaba. He says there are 16 companies lined up to invest. There are plans for an industrial relations center and a big museum dedicated to the triple disaster of March 11, 2011. At this point, it appears that most farmers are probably not going to come back to Futaba. So there have been talks with a big agricultural company up in Sendai to take up a farming project on the land. Let's hear some of those translations from that blog of what some of the citizens that Suzuki talked with had to say. First, Yuji Onuma, 43 years old, originally from Futaba, presently evacuated to Ibaraki Prefecture. When he was in sixth grade, Unama's PR phrase, nuclear power, energy for a bright future, was chosen for a sign at the entrance of Futaba Village. The sign was finally removed in December of 2015. What did Onama have to say in this blog post? I think the torch relay involved nothing more than reconstruction PR and signaling the end of the nuclear disaster by cleaning up a small area of town and lifting the evacuation order. I'm concerned that the torch relay will be greeted skeptically as a one-time performance and Japan will lose the trust of people around the world. Once the evacuation order is lifted, I myself am going to be considered a quote-unquote voluntary evacuee. Reconstruction is just a fantasy. The reconstruction being touted in conjunction with the Olympics completely diverges from reality. In a town with no residents, the train station has been impressively restored, and soon the whole Joban train line will be reopened. Yet every time I go for a short visit, I see the interim waste storage areas expanding along the coast on the east side of town. Even if the torch relay passes through town, people in Futaba won't feel in their hearts that this means actual recovery. There are still so many streets that remain exactly as they were when the accident happened. Radiation has gone down, but other than that, there is nothing to base the idea of recovery or reconstruction on. Even if it appears that the town has recovered, the lives and the futures of people who would have been living in Futaba if there hadn't been an accident are in a complete mess. I think the recovery of the heart will be difficult forever. In an environment where contaminated water keeps flowing and contaminated debris keeps piling up, we shouldn't be doing PR just for the Olympics. We aren't recovered yet. It's going to take a long time, but we are still trying hard. I think that in itself is good enough. My hometown has become a nuclear waste dump. The nuclear power PR sign that was the symbol of the town before the accident is now rotting somewhere that is not visible from Route 6, the main road through this area. We are being told that our town no longer has any use for the past, the era when our forebears believed in nuclear power and lived alongside the nuclear power plant. In addition to removing the sign, horrible scenery of mounds of 
bags filled with decontamination waste desecrate the graves where our ancestors sleep. Can you really call this recovery? Quite eloquently put. Now, here are the comments of a 70-year-old woman who is now living in the Nakadori, or central part of Fukushima, who was born and raised in Futaba. Whether the torch relay goes through Futaba or not, and whether baseball and softball are held in Fukushima or not, it has nothing to do with us. Nothing is going to change because the torch relay passed through town. While it might be good for the town to be seen again by people across Japan and the world, I think being made a symbol of recovery misses the mark. In the end, it's just making up something newsworthy out of nothing. If you ask whether the lives of the evacuees have been restored to their original condition, well, they absolutely haven't. And this from a woman whose ancestral home is in Futaba and who talked about the storehouse roof being damaged in a recent typhoon. In December, I went to my ancestral home to clean up a bit. Precious family history had been ruined with mud and radioactive contamination. Our storehouse had been damaged in the earthquake, and the typhoon finished it off. A truck came and carried everything away to the interim storage site for contaminated waste. That wasn't trash. It was my family's history. I want people to understand how sad that makes me feel. The torch relay won't get that message out to anyone. Even if we return, there is no one there. That fact is being ignored while everyone makes a big deal about the Olympics. The more the Olympics is fussed over, actual recovery in terms of local revitalization fails to progress at all. I wish someone could understand these feelings. The catchphrase, Reconstruction Olympics, does not reflect reality at all. In the shadow of the torch relay, our family homes are silently being cleaned up. In the shadow of the spectacular torch relay, I want to say in a loud voice that the hearts of the evacuees are far from recovery. There were also some comments that were gleaned for this blog from a rice cake pounding event that was held on January 5th at a reconstruction housing development in Nihon Matsu. A 60-year-old woman from Namie, where the torch relay will pass a new robot testing field, always a good idea because robots go to Fukushima Daiichi to get burned out and die. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, the torch relay will pass a new robot testing field and a hydrogen energy research facility. What did she have to say? She said, the torch relay is strange, isn't it? Is there some way we can change the plans now? I could understand if they were going to run around the train station or town hall, but a something or other factory doesn't really emphasize recovery, does it? I think that's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Also at this event was a 50-year-old woman who had no idea the torch relay was going to pass by the hydrogen electric research facility and even applied to be one of the runners. The recruitment PR for the relay said, do you want to run around town? Of course. One would think that that means running in the area where the elementary school suffered catastrophic damage in the tsunami and through the town, for example. I didn't want to run as an advertisement for reconstruction. By running, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has helped me so far. 
I wanted to say it's because of you that I've been able to persevere. Unfortunately, I wasn't chosen for the relay team. And finally, we have a comment from Town Council Chairman, Mr. Tamora, and he had this to say. After all, the torch relay is just an advertisement for the government. And another man said, Reconstruction Olympics is meaningless. The only ones who are going to be happy about spending all that money are the big general contractors who will benefit. The man suggested that if they really want to show the truth, that the runners should travel along Route 114. But, he added, it would be a violation of human rights to force someone to run in such a highly contaminated area. So the picture that's emerging is that, quite frankly, be it hell or high water, both of which Fukushima has seen, there is going to be a run on the ground through radioactive areas. Now, there is the question of the use of the words Sometimes it's recovery, sometimes it's reconstruction. What do either of these words have to do with what is actually going on in Fukushima Prefecture and specifically here in Futaba? Well, actually, as I went translating all of this, there was the phrase hakomono or box things, which means buildings. That was a new thing for me. And then another thing that I really got to thinking about is the Japanese word fuko which it's not something that you can directly translate into English. It sort of means reconstruction, and it also means recovery. It means rebuilding and revitalizing. And I asked Yuji, as I said, you know, I'm really having trouble translating this, and the government is saying reconstruction Olympics. And to me, that means like just rebuilding building somewhere or, you know, big pork barrel construction projects. It doesn't mean recovery. The meaning of fuko, it's not just reconstruction. It also incorporates the idea of revitalizing or recovery. And I just think it's really strange that the government chose reconstruction for the English translation because translating what all of these people who live in Futaba or who used to live in Futaba and Namie, it seems to me that the towns along Hamadori, the towns that we visited, Tomioka and Namie, and then also ones we didn't visit like Futaba, all they're really covering in those areas is the reconstruction part of the equation. They're not covering that revitalizing the community or recovery of the evacuees' emotional lives. And that seems to be really the missing element here overall. So it seems that the focus remains on the buildings and the physical evidence that something is happening and the image of the area, but not the truth of what happened to the human beings and continues to happen as they are unable to truly recover from anything that devastating as they keep trying to put their lives together. Exactly. Beverly, it is always instructive when you and Yuji start translating from the Japanese to let us know what's actually happening there and what people are actually saying. And we will be getting back in touch with you for Voices from Japan this year and also for anything that comes up between now and then. 
And thank you for being my guest and my co-producer for Voices from Japan. Always great to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. This is really always a learning experience for me, too, and I really appreciate it. And we appreciate the chance to try and spread some of these actual voices from Japan and uh, let people know, people here know what the evacuees are thinking in their hearts. Anytime you've got anything more, we're here for you. Thank you. That was Beverly Finlay Kaneko, the co-producer of Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan series. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out. We received a request from Marianne Birkby. She is a wildlife artist who founded Radiation Free Lakeland in 2008 to oppose geological dumping of nuclear waste and new nuclear developments in West Cumbria in England. The ongoing petition can be found at Stop Moorside, the biggest new nuclear development in Europe, and we will give you a link to that petition. According to Marianne, new nuclear in Cumbria would burn the planet quicker and faster but is being aggressively promoted as a solution to global warming. Well, we all know about the lie of that one. She adds, The Sellafield site has the biggest amount of radioactivity on the planet. A major accident involving the liquid high-level waste tanks would have catastrophic consequences and make the area uninhabitable for many generations. We will have a link up to that petition for your signing at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 450. However, you need to know that in order for it to go through, you must have a UK postal code or they will kick it out. Now, if you are in the UK, that's great. If you know someone in the UK, that's great. And if not, write this down. L A seven put in his space, 7, D like David, J like Judge. Use that as the postal code, and it will go through. So let your voice be heard. Here's this week's final thought. This week's Nuclear Hot Seat episode marks number 450, 450. Wow. When I started this program back in 2011, it wasn't even a podcast. It was a conference call that had just two people on it, one of whom I already knew. Though I had been at Three Mile Island, just one mile away from that nuclear reactor when the meltdown happened, my early attempts at activism post-TMI fell apart under the weight of the post-traumatic stress that followed that terrifying experience. So I turned my back on any level of nuclear awareness. I even ignored Chernobyl when it happened giving many great reasons why, but in truth, because the thought of another nuclear accident and radiation leak terrified me all over again. But by the time Fukushima happened on March 11 of 2011, I was healed enough and I was ready. After three months of obsessively following the news online, which was the only place one could get honest information, and writing about it for local publications, talking about it on NPR and podcasts and in my weekly storytelling group, I got the hit to start a podcast. Not that I knew what one was or how to create one. But I set up a conference call, shared what I knew about Fukushima, radiation, and nuclear dangers, 
and asked the two attendees if they thought a show on nuclear issues would be of interest to anyone. They heartily agreed. That was on June 14 of 2011, and with only two exceptions in that first year, one for reasons of health and the other for travel, Nuclear Hot Seat has been going out to listeners every week since then. The last audit we had showed that people in 123 countries had downloaded the show at least once, and it's syndicated for broadcast by community and nonprofit radio stations by Pacifica's Audioport Network, so it's getting on the airwaves as well. During this time, I have been honored to get to know some of the finest human beings on Earth. Those of you who dedicate your time, energies, actions, thought, and heart to turning around or somehow mitigating this deadly technology. When I started Nuclear Hot Seat, I thought I knew a lot about nuclear. And I guess that, compared with my neighbors, I did. But in truth, I knew next to nothing. And so I've been adding to my knowledge base, one week, one show, one interview at a time. I'm fortunate that this gives me a platform to talk with world experts and get them to weigh in and answer my questions, and hopefully those are your questions too. I've spoken with nuclear engineers, doctors, researchers, politicians, educators, epidemiologists, lawyers, politicians, authors, filmmakers, reporters, and, of course, activists. Now, activist is often used as a dismissive term by the media, as though anything an activist has to say is less important or accurate than what a so-called expert is dishing out. But I see activist as a brave, important badge of honor. Activists are those people who see a desperate problem that needs to be addressed, that is being covered up or ignored, or even supported by those with the power to do something about it, and then dedicate their lives, energies, talent, heart, and bank account to making sure that the truth, in this case the nuclear truth, is not ignored, forgotten, disguised, covered up, and that future disasters are avoided and past contaminations addressed. I salute you, each and every one of you, for your dedication, sense of community, and the comfort you have shared when I reached out for support. I love your sense of humor, too. So Nuclear Hot Seat continues. Weekly news, interviews, numbnuts, all sourced from verifiable media sources around the world, along with acknowledgments of successes and commiseration when things don't work out as we wish. Part of the mission statement of this show is to provide nuclear information for people who know nothing and want to know something, and people who know something who would like to know more. It is also dedicated to helping those in our community know who each other is and keeping us all in good heart. So thank you for listening, for caring, for your support, the girls, the information you share so willingly. Because of Nuclear Hot Seat, I belong to an international community of terrific people, and that includes you. And I thank you for inviting me in. Now, let's find some more broadcast stations to carry the show. So the unsuspecting who are stuck in drive-time traffic will have the chance to learn more nuclear truth 
than they ever thought possible. Who's in on that as we go forward with the next 450 episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat? Yeah, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 4, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, Radiation-Free Lakeland, Public Watchdogs, Detroit News, yellowheadinstitute.org, fas.org, CNN, commondreams.org, m.clevescene.com, that's Cleveland, currentargus.com, oregonlive.com, navajotimes.com, the esteemed Robert Alvarez, nhk.or.jp, runningmagazine.ca, real sports, goodmenproject.com, bologna.org, theguardian.com, and concerned individuals around the world who keep me informed as to what the nuclear situation looks like in their neck of the woods. That's what legendary journalist Edward R. Murrow had in place before he even went to England for CBS to report on World War II. It's good to know that because of you, our bases are covered. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if we missed one, let us know. We'll load it up there as well. And if you'd like to do it the easy way, you can get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered by email every week. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow opt-in box, and sign up for your weekly email link to the latest show. And I really mean it. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and look for that big red button. We will be really grateful for your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020. Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that once you know the truth about nuclear, how can you not be against it. There it is. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So please, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.